If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul confessed, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We know the feeling. We want our children to be curious, to pursue knowledge, to be well-read and critical thinkers, but we systematically defund public education, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We want a world that is less violent and more peaceful, but not if we have to give up our guns. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We want to be known as a Christian nation, but we refuse to do the most basic act of love, like wearing a face mask to the grocery store. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And yet, we know from this same letter that Paul never gives up. He never stops trying to turn towards love, towards grace, and towards peace. So may it be with us, ever turning towards love, towards grace, towards peace in spite of ourselves. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Our scripture lesson comes from the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Oh, you are beautiful, my love. Oh, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Oh, you are beautiful, my beloved truly lovely. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. If you had trouble finding the scripture reading in your Bible this morning, you are not alone. It's easy to miss it coming and going, in part because it's wedged between a couple of heavy hitters, Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And then once you do find it, its contents usually go way outside of our comfort zone. 
While any time we read the Bible, we're basically reading someone else's mail, the song makes us think twice about doing so. The Song of Solomon, sometimes known as the Song of Songs or the Song, is an incredibly personal love letter. The words most commonly used to describe the song are sensual, erotic, and intimate. This is really why pastors don't preach from the song very often, if ever. When you have to read scripture, it feels like every other word is a body part in that text. People get worried that the pastor is about to give the congregation a birds and the bees talk, but believe me when I say that preachers do not want to do that as much as you do not want us to do that. There's a long history of anxiety related to the song. In the third century, Origen of Alexandria warned that the song was such powerful stuff that it should not be read at all until one had conquered one's passions. But beyond that consideration, it's not a particularly obvious choice to preach or teach from, for as theologian Ellen Davis reminds us, there is in the whole book not a single overt reference to God, to prayer, or to any aspect of Israel's religious practice or tradition. Archaeological discoveries of the past century have revealed a pronounced resemblance between the song and the love poetry of ancient Egypt. Some scholars now believe that the biblical poem originated as a popular drinking song or a wedding song. Perhaps, then, it will surprise you to know that Christians have, through the centuries, regarded the song as one of the most religiously profound and most difficult books of the Bible. Except for Genesis and the Psalms, the song has generated more commentary than any other book of the Bible. Medieval Christians especially were fascinated by it. By the year 1200, more than 100 commentaries had been written on the wonders and puzzles of this small book. Despite all these commentaries, Few sermons are preached out of the song. There's not exactly a narrative, no story, only two lovers singing the praises of the other. And when taken as allegory, the metaphors are too laborious to unpack in a Sunday morning sermon. Generally speaking, it's relegated to wedding liturgies and not much else. There are typically two approaches to interpreting the song. Modern commentators tend to adhere rigidly to a sexual interpretation, decoding the highly metaphorical language of the song into a series of physically explicit references. The suggestion that religious experience is part of what the poet had in mind is often regarded as foreign, if not hostile, to the song's celebration of faithful human love. Their ancient and medieval counterparts, however, erred in the other direction. For them, the power was in allegory, a coded account of religious experiences so that every image had to be decoded. For instance, the two breasts that are described as more delightful than wine in chapter one, verse two, 
were the law and the prophets, or the Old and the New Testament, or Christ's mercy and the truth, so on. Around here, of course, we opt for a generous reading of the text so that we allow both interpretations to be helpful and meaningful because for the love of everything holy, can't we all just admit that biblical interpretation is a hot mess because some insist that plain meaning is always evident. No, the Bible is not self-interpreting. We do that work. And to do it faithfully, we have to do so with care and theological humility. It is absolutely reasonable for you to be wondering why exactly we're talking about this book right now. Is this really the scripture lesson for the day? Whether we unpack the metaphors or we celebrate scripture that affirms human sexuality and devotion, it might seem odd to read from the song in this particular moment in history. The coronavirus is spiking everywhere with no vaccine in sight. Wearing a mask has turned into a matter of party loyalty instead of a practical way to slow infection rates. The president may have ignored warnings that Russia offered bounties for killing American troops in Afghanistan. We continue to debate the merits of removing symbols of oppression and white supremacy from public places. And here in Oklahoma, Getting in line at 2 a.m. won't ensure that the employment office will be able to see you that day. What can we possibly glean? What practical application might possibly come from reading this love letter in the Bible? Well, a few things. Tradition ascribed the song to ancient Israel's King Solomon. The rabbi said he wrote it in his youth when he was highly susceptible to love. Yet the language of the book indicates that it comes from a time many centuries after Solomon, for the Hebrew poet borrows Persian and possibly Greek words. Furthermore, the modern debate about authorship has raised a new and interesting possibility. A number of scholars now suggest that the author was a woman. They note accurately that female characters and voices are more prominent in the song than male. The question of authorship, though, will probably never receive a definite answer. However, there is good historical reason for thinking that the poem might well be the creation of a woman. And this unexpected point of view is important. As Reverend Anthony Robinson observes, in speaking so joyously of sexuality and in adopting a woman's voice, the song offers a remarkable and welcome minority report within the scriptures. But it is not simply that we are hearing a woman's voice reading this text. In chapter 1, verse 5, the speaker describes herself as black and beautiful. And as theologian Phyllis Isabella Shepherd points out, the song is the text with the most fully portrayed, self-identified black woman in the Bible. Here, we become witnesses to this black woman's longings, complaints, passion, imagination, disappointments, fears, angers, and hopes in the socio-cultural Babylonian context. And we might ask ourselves how the black woman of the song can help us understand the experience of black women today. So 
let us read this woman's story in the song and then go out and learn from other black women. We might start with Austin Channing Brown, a black woman who wrote, I'm still here, black dignity in a world made for whiteness. Another reason that it may be exactly the right time to open our Bibles just left of center is exactly what makes us a little nervous about the book, all the talk about love. If we are to find a path towards reconciliation with ourselves, with others, with God, it will be in part because we will have joined the song in its dogged insistence that beauty is everywhere. Let us turn back to our scripture lesson, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where we find someone who says, oh, you are beautiful, my love. Oh, you are beautiful. And then someone who says back to them, oh, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly lovely. The whole orientation of the song is captured in those few words, Oh, you are beautiful, my love. This is the song's posture toward the entire world. Oh, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. The two beloveds in the song find beauty everywhere, everywhere they look, in each other's bodies, in their own bodies, in the landscape, in the turning of the seasons, in what they eat and drink in the friendships they nurture, in everything around them. The text invites us to wonder what will we hear if we spend time noticing and praising the beauty all around us? What will we notice if we make the words of the song our own? How will we see ourselves and each other differently if we deliberately utter these words, oh, you are beautiful. It is a prayer that we can offer anywhere, at work, at home, when we find ourselves staring at the ceiling in the middle of the night, when we are completing the to-do list, when we are sharing a meal, when we are taking a walk, when we are about to go down the rabbit hole of despair, when we are sitting in the quiet, practicing this prayer, this poem, this posture, may illuminate beauty in unexpected places, a sink full of dishes, in the broken places of our lives, and in the most ordinary of moments, the day-to-day, -day, which is so often called unremarkable. Look up, the text urges us. Oh, you are beautiful. Look around, the text urges us. You are beautiful. Look inside, the text urges us. Oh, you are beautiful. When Munadaji, a meditation teacher, was asked why he practiced, his response was, so I will see the tiny purple flowers by the side of the road as I walk to town each day. In the midst of the struggle and the striving, in the waiting and the in-between time, in the 
hurrying and the planning and the replanning, it is more important now than ever to be mindful, to celebrate beauty, to lift up love in such a time as this church. Let no beauty, no act of kindness, no gesture of goodwill go unnoticed, uncelebrated, unadored, or unpraised. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.